Father, with great expectations for what you can do, we call on you to do even more. Your word says that you are able and willing to do more than all that we could think or ask. So whatever greatest, whatever the greatest possible request that would be to our greatest benefit and would bring you the most glory in our minds, you can do more. So we trust you, we trust your word, and I pray that as I preach your word and as we listen to your spirit and we listen to your truth, that you would make us weak because in our weakness is when you are your strongest in us. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Colossians 1, 1 through 2. And yes, that's the beginning of a new book. So today is our first day in this new journey into Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I'm excited. I love starting new books. I have no idea how long this is going to take, uh, but it's much shorter than 1 Corinthians, so just keep that in mind. 1 Corinthians was 16 chapters. This one's only four, so I imagine it will be a lot quicker than, than 1 Corinthians was. But we get to take our time here, and I want us to understand the text. I want us to understand uh, the historical context. I want us to understand what's going on in their times and what that means to what Paul's saying and what that would mean to the original readers and what then, and, and, and interpreting that, we would then understand what this really means to us. And what is at stake in this letter, ultimately, is Jesus. And what is not at stake is the supreme and sovereign nature of Jesus. That's never at stake. He, doesn't, he never changes, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus will never change. He will always rule. He'll always be sovereign. He'll always be supreme. So that's not at stake. What is at stake in this letter is our perspective on the nature of Jesus. How we view him. Listen, what you believe matters. What you believe affects the way you live. I mean, think about it. I don't want to be crass, but if you believe that abortion is okay, is that going to affect your choices? Yeah, if you believe that abortion is not okay, is that going to affect your choices when you're pregnant? Of course it will. So what you believe matters, what you believe affects the way you live, but more importantly, what you believe about God affects the way you live. So my agenda here is to like help you gain perspective, is to help us understand how important perspective is. On Thursday this week, I went to breakfast with a friend. And we agreed to meet at a restaurant that I was absolutely certain was open. This restaurant's always closed on Monday, but it was Thursday. So we get there, we walk up to the door, and there's a sign on the door that says, we're closed all week. 
And I was like, why? <laughs> like, what in the world would make this place be closed on a Thursday? Because it just doesn't make, it didn't make sense to me. I don't understand. Either way, I go there with the perspective that it's going to be open. And when I get there, there's a different reality. Right? So my perspective didn't change reality. My expectations didn't change reality. What I believed to be true was not true. My perspective affected my relationship with truth. The restaurant was open. That was my perspective. The restaurant was closed. That is a reality. Truth doesn't change if your perspective is wrong. You just lose out on that truth if your perspective is wrong. So your perspective on the nature of Christ doesn't change who he is. What you believe about him doesn't change who he is. What you know about him does not affect who he is and what he's like or what he does. But your perspective on the nature of Christ does change how you experience him. So my aim for today is to show you the significance of how we view the nature of Jesus Christ, which is revealed in Colossians in a very unique way. It's revealed in Colossians because the Colossian church was facing a false teaching that skewed the perspective of Jesus. So let's read verses 1 through 2 together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints Faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, this is a pretty standard introduction from Paul. He does this often. He usually begins his letters identifying who he is and what his role is. So, he identifies himself as the author, and then he asserts his authority to write to the churches as an apostle of Jesus, and then he adds to his authority by stating that his call as an apostle is God's sovereign will, because he says an apostle of Christ Jesus. We know Paul's commissioned by Christ Jesus because when Paul's on the road to Damascus is when he first meets Christ face to face. Jesus changes his heart, saves him, blinds him with his glory. Paul doesn't see for three days and he becomes a believer and he changes the course of history as we know it. So we know he met with Christ and met him face to face, with, which validates him as an apostle. And then we know from Galatians chapter 1 that Jesus came to Paul again in a, some sort of either vision or manifestation, somehow communicated directly to Paul again to give him instructions for the church. So Paul is asserting that authority as an apostle of Christ Jesus, but not just of Christ Jesus, but by the will of God the Father. So there is no question as to the authority of Paul to write what he's going to write to this church, and it's going to be a significant, a significant number of significant statements that he's going to make, not just about the church, and not just about how you live, or who you are, or what you're doing, or what it means to be godly, but about who Christ is, and how your godliness, how your righteousness, how you live your life, is a product of what you believe about Jesus. 
So your perspective is vitally important. Your perspective on who Christ is is the most important reality in your life. Because it will affect what you look like, who you are, what you believe, how you feel, how you respond to tragedy, and how you respond to, to victories. It will determine how you treat your wife or your husband. It will determine how you deal with your children, how you parent. It will determine what decision you make about where you go to school or what kind of degree to pursue when you're in school. It will give you direction about what, cho- what, what jobs to choose. Let's say you're a contractor or something. Do I take this job or that job? How do I respond to a conflict at work? All of those things, the reality of life, the groundwork of living as a Christian is all going to be determined and affected most significantly by how you view Jesus. And Paul's entire aim in this letter is to give us the best perspective on who Christ is. Now, in reading these first two verses, it seems as if the letter's going well. In fact, as we go on over the next few weeks, we read the first uh, 14 verses... Everything looks great. The church is doing great. Paul praises the church. We'll see in the next few weeks. He's like, oh, I thank God for you. I pray for you. You guys are doing great. And, he's like, just says, and Paul does that in most of his letters. He begins with an introduction, which we have here today, verses 1 and 2. And then he gets into like a little bit of commendation where he's commending them. He's approving them. He's celebrating them for their faithfulness and their godliness. And, and so that's a very helpful tactic that we pick up from Paul in communicating with others. If you ever have to tell someone something that's difficult and you take a page from Paul's letters, what you'll get is this idea of like, before you bring down the gauntlet on someone's life, begin by telling them things that they're doing well. It might soften them up a little bit. And I, think, I don't think Paul's aim is to just soften up the church before the hard truth. He's being honest about who they are. And ultimately what he's celebrating is not the goodness of the good people in Colossae. What he's celebrating is the goodness of God in Christ Jesus to make them that way. So until the, when we read through the first 14 verses, we're sitting here going, this looks like this church is doing pretty well. But then we get to verse 15. And still, if you don't know the historical context of the letter, verse 15 just seems like Paul's just going on with some really cool concepts about who Christ is. But the reality is there was a big problem in Colossae. There was a major problem in Colossae. And some context is required to understand the problem. And so despite Paul starting with such a positive tone, he's in fact actually dealing with this problematic false teaching that's running through the church by addressing it with truth. So let's gain some historical context. Let me help you understand what, what Colossae is. It's a, it's a town. It's uh, hundreds of years before the New Testament times, before Jesus, before Paul, Colossae was a major town. It had a major role in, in a lot of things. People traveled through it to get to Ephesus, to get to uh, the rivers and the lakes and the, and the seas. And so Colossae was a metropolis, essentially. Uh, by the time the New Testament rolls around, 
in about Jesus' time, first century A.D., Colossae is not that big of a deal anymore because more towns have risen up and surrounding towns have become bigger and more important. So Colossae is kind of an unimportant, insignificant town at the time when the church is established. And the way in which the church was established is a little unlike the rest of the churches that Paul writes to. Paul did not establish the Colossian church. Paul was in Ephesus preaching the gospel and building a church in Ephesus, which was just miles west. So um, I had a map that I was going to show you, and then I forgot to put it on the PowerPoint. So if you just think about where Israel is, okay, and I'll try to do this backwards because you're looking at me. So if you're looking at a map of Israel, and Israel's against the Mediterranean Sea, if you go up north and around the sea, boom, you'll hit Colossae. It's in what is today modern-day Turkey. Okay, so, and then just if you go just a little further west... You get to the Aegean Sea, and what is there is Ephesus. And that's where Paul is, and that's, Paul is preaching the gospel and establishing the church. And two guys from Colossae by the name of Epaphras and Philemon. Does the name Philemon sound familiar to you? It should. It's a book of the Bible. And it's about a guy named Philemon. And that guy, Philemon, is the guy I'm talking about now. Philemon and Epaphras live in Colossae. And they travel to Ephesus. They hear Paul preach the gospel. They believe the gospel. They get raised up by Paul. And they go back to Colossae to preach the gospel there. And they establish the first church in Colossae. Now the reason for Paul's letter to the Colossians, though, has to do with a specific heresy. So the church is established in a healthy form on the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it is, as we read in Scripture, the true, genuine, good, great news of Jesus Christ. That is what the church, the Colossian church was built on. But not long after it was established, while Paul was in prison in Rome, there began to be these people who started raising some problems with their syncretic gospel. Uh, a syncretic gospel is a gospel that is anything, that, that, that is the gospel as we know it, but then it adds a, a certain other elements from either other religions, like Judaism. We see that in Galatian church. In the Galatian church, they believed the gospel, and there were people bringing a heresy into the Galatian church that was the gospel plus Plus Judaism. So you've got to be saved by Jesus and circumcised and follow Moses' law. That's syncretic gospel because it's a blending of different religious beliefs. Well, this is a different syncretic gospel. This is a, a false gospel called Gnosticism. And so Gnosticism comes from a group of people who call themselves Gnostics. And they were a group of people who believed themselves to be the most intelligent people in the world. That's a pretty heavy boast, but they could back it up because they were really smart people. And they came up with all kinds of complex ideas that would just basically confuse people and they'd be like, oh, you silly simpleton. You don't understand my level of knowledge. And that's just kind of their arrogance, self-righteous, overtly spiritual attitude. <clears throat> The Greek word, uh, the, or the, our English word Gnostic comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means to know. So the Gnostics were 
the people in the know, the spiritual elite with all the answers to all things pertaining to anything spiritual. And they, their claim was that they, with their, with their superior knowledge, they could help the Colossians gain a deeper sense of spirituality by adhering to a version of the gospel or a version of reality that is their version. So they take the gospel and they turn it and they twist it and they taint it with Gnosticism. And they looked at the Colossians and thought, you simple people don't know anything. You believe that you're saved by just having faith? I mean, think about that idea. The gospel is so complex if you really dive in deep to it. But ultimately, the essential nature of the gospel is purely simple. Just believe. That's it. It's so simple Children can believe it and be saved, which is exactly what Jesus says in the Gospels. He's like, you, all of you adults, whether you're a Gnostic and you think you're, you're so smart spiritually or you're just not that way, but you just think you got life figured out. Either way, you adults, be like these kids. Be like these children. Faith of a child. Just believe. It's that simple. And the Gnostics look at that and they said, oh, spirituality can't be that simple. It's not that easy. It has to be more complex. So they complicated it. So really, what is Gnosticism? I'll give you an idea of what it is. As a belief, Gnosticism reasons that all matter and material, okay, all matter, material, anything physical or anything created is purely evil. And that only the spirit is good. So this pulpit it would be evil. This microphone's evil. This table's evil. That food is evil. You're evil because you're physical and matter and created as well. Everything you see, air itself, which is physical and created, is evil. All of creation is evil. And I don't just mean, they don't just mean like, oh no, it's like tainted by sin. Like it was made holy, but then was tainted by sin. They did not believe it was made holy. I'll tell you why they didn't believe it was made holy. Because they, because they don't believe that, the Gnostics didn't believe that God created the world. Because if all matter and everything physical is evil and God is purely holy, then he can't dwell with evil. So he can't touch creation. He can't have created evil with his own hands because he'd have to be in the presence of evil. So therefore, God did not create anything. So then where did creation come from? Well, this is where the Gnostics start to get complex. They believe that through a series of surrogate emanations, (laughs) God created a lesser God, And then that lesser God became a lesser God. And then that lesser God reproduced another lesser God. And so on and so on and so on and so on and so forth. So there was a lineage of lesser gods so far. And God himself being perfect and holy, uh, I guess, materialized this lesser God or emanated this lesser God who is right next to him and is mostly holy. And then as they get further and further away from God, they're less and less holy. And by the time you get to the lesser God who created all the earth and everything, that lesser God was purely evil because he was far enough away from God in the lineage. And that, that is how they explain creation. Which logically makes no sense because if God is 
If the lesser God has to be evil to create everything in order for God himself to create that first lesser God, that first lesser God has to have some form of evil in him in order for evil to grow as the lineage progresses. But that can't be possible because they still have the same dilemma. God existed or created or touched something evil, so they still don't solve their problem. So it logically doesn't make sense. And for a bunch of guys who think they're really smart, that's not very smart. So the Gnostics built a super complex system of religion in which um, you start with, you, you can't start with something physical. And you can kind of see where this is going, where the problem is for Paul and for the church and for the gospel. Because if everything physical, including all human flesh, is evil, then what do we do with Jesus Christ? And so the Gnostics came up with another solution. Jesus is not human. He is a ghost-like phantom. Tell that to Thomas, who put his finger into Jesus' hand and felt his wounds. So the Gnostics, with their complex system of religion, they say, you start with Christ. He can't be human, but we start with Christ. And if we start with Christ, then we work our way up this series of lesser gods to get to the one true God. So essentially, the problem with Gnosticism is many, many problems with Gnosticism. But the problem with Gnosticism as it relates to our gospel is that Jesus was the starting point, not the finish line. Jesus is the starting point. Jesus is not enough because Jesus is not human. That is the heresy of Gnosticism. That Jesus is not human and therefore Jesus is not sufficient. And that is a huge idea. So hear what I'm saying to you. That essentially what Gnosticism boils down to, and it's the heresy that the church in Colossae Colossae was facing, is that that, that Gnosticism declares that Jesus is not enough, or ultimately that Jesus, because he's not human, is not sufficient. So those two realities, Jesus is not human and not sufficient, is the problem. And it's the problem that Paul addresses throughout the letter. So with the news of this heresy spreading throughout the Colossian church, Paul writes this letter, and and I think he takes a wise approach in his and is counter to this false teaching. Instead of responding to heresy by debating the issues and arguing against false teaching, uh, he resorts to simply just stating what is true. If you read through the letter, he's not talking about, oh, the Gnostics say this, and the Gnostics say that, and this guy says this, and this guy says that. He doesn't even bother with that. He just tells them truth. The truth that he tells them is related to the heresy that they're hearing. So as we, now that you understand what Gnosticism is and the heresy that was taking place in, in, in the Colossian church, as you read the rest of the letter, you'll see, now that makes sense. I can see why Paul said what he said because of the heresy that I know that exists there. It'll start to come to life as you see Paul start talking about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ. And that ultimately is the theme of the Colossians' letter. Because it's the heresy that they were facing. 
That's the theme of Colossians. The supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Paul doesn't debate. Instead, he just gives evidence of his claims about the nature of Christ being both fully man and fully God. And we pick up, I think, a helpful tactic from Paul in this approach. Like his approach to just go right to the truth. I've come to realize in my life personally that when I talk to people and they don't believe what I believe, oftentimes it's not that, it really is just a matter of presuppositions. Like they have a presupposition, an idea, a concept, something that they believe that they already believe and they're unwilling to change from it. There's, there's no willingness to listen or willingness to change or to believe something else. They just have a presupposition. They have a perspective, and that perspective doesn't change. And what I've learned is that it's very unproductive to argue with people who are set in their presuppositions. So what we learn here from Paul is this. Don't argue against false teaching just tell the truth you don't have to argue against it you just have to say what is true that is how we ought to spread the gospel if we always get caught up in responding to every debatable issue in the bible or every debatable issue of the bible every debatable issue brought up against the bible or against god or against christ if we spend all our time fighting all the debatable questions or concepts that we never actually get to the truth so our response is just to say the truth proverbs 26 4 says answer not a fool according to his folly lest you be like him yourself meaning don't argue with a fool by arguing with a fool you're just a fool you're just validating their ridiculous argument instead you just state the truth and paul tells timothy in first timothy 4 7 have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Do you see the contrast there? Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. So don't argue the silliness. Don't get involved in the myth conversation. You don't have to have a debate. You don't have to travel down that road. You're going to get lost and you're going to get pulled down a bunch of rabbit holes that lead to irreverent, ridiculous conversations that are way off track. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe? I, I've had many conversations. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone who doesn't believe, but they're smart and they know what they do, but they, they think they know what they believe and they've got arguments for everything? What I've noticed is that the argument never stays on track. They'll ask, well, how can you say that Jesus is, saves? And what about the people in, in uh, Siberia who've never even heard of Jesus, never heard the gospel, and they die, so they go to hell? And then I'm like, start to answer that question. They're like, okay, well then what about this? They start going down other rabbit trails. And as you're trying to answer questions, they're just, they're leading you. They're fooling you, just taking you on this route. And all of a sudden you're lost in the woods and you're not having a conversation at all. You're just arguing with somebody about a bunch of silly and irreverent ideas. So what do we do instead? Paul answers it in 1 Timothy 4, 7. He says, rather train yourself in godliness. The solution to heresies, false teachings, debates, arguments, or misconceptions about the gospel is not to focus on the problem, but to focus on the truth. I know a lot of people who love apologetics to the point where all they think about is all the arguments it's like stop focusing on the argument, start learning the gospel. Then you'll have the best argument ever. 
You know the gospel well. You know the truth well. Train yourself for godliness and you will have the right response. You'll have the right mindset to deal with the people you're responding to. You'll know how to show them compassion and when to be firm. You'll know because you have, are training yourself in godliness, you'll know how to present yourself and how to present your, de- your debate or how to present your truth. So instead of fighting and arguing and baiting people, just say what's true. I mean, the Bible says it to us multiple times. And we know we, we, know we just have to say what the Bible says. Why? Because of Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. And what I know from Philippians 2 is that Paul writes, Every knee in heaven on earth and under earth and every tongue will confess will confess that Jesus is Lord they will every one of them every unbeliever every believer every single person will stand before the white throne of judgment you too Christians as well and at our judgment You better believe that God's going to pull out a long list of sins on your record that he can't see because the blood of Christ is spilled all over it. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. But to those who don't know him, he'll say, depart from me, you doer of iniquity. And they will in his presence, fall on their knees, and with their tongue they will say, Jesus, you are Lord. And he's going to say, it's too late. You had your chance. You disobeyed my gospel and chose not to believe. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Because God's word proves true. This will happen. Every person will confess it at some time. So you don't have to worry about the results of you sharing the gospel with people or you declaring truth or you fighting against heresies and false teachings or, or having arguments or discussions about the Bible or about God. You don't have to worry about the results. Because it doesn't say that every line of logic and every debate you have against false claims proves true. It says God's word, God's word proves true. So just say the word. That's it. Just, just say what the Bible says. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. I like the NASB better. It shall not return to me void. But it shall, be a, it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Your clever illustrations, your examples, your acknowledges, your anecdotes are not what saves. What saves is the word of God. What saves is the word of God because it proves true. And that is Paul's approach to simply claim the truth and let God work out the hearts of those who hear it. That's his approach. He's got a group of believers in Colossae who already believe the gospel. They're being fed this heresy. And he doesn't go, whoa, 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 don't listen to that heresy. No, no, don't listen to that guy. Hey, look at me, look at me, don't look at him. He's not insecure about the gospel. He's incredibly secure about the gospel. He's like, 
this is, he doesn't even bother saying this is what they're telling you. He just goes, listen to me. This is the gospel. This is the Christ. This is who he is. This is what he's like. And he spends the whole book explaining to us the nature of Jesus Christ and what the nature of Jesus Christ looks like in your life. I mean, if, this, if, if the things he tells us, especially in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, if, we, if those things are true about Jesus, then that is going to have a significant, in fact, the most significant impact on your life on every level. And then Paul spends the rest of the letter explaining the practical ramifications of believing with the right perspective that Jesus. And what you see in Paul's explanation of the Christian life with the right perspective on Jesus is a beautiful, godly, holy, Christ-centered, Jesus-loving, God-glorifying, spirit-saturated, word-loving people. That's, what, that's the kind of person you will be if you get this right perspective on Christ. This is one of the most essential books in the entire Bible. I'd say this and Ephesians, because Ephesians and Colossians are very similar, which makes sense because Paul's preaching in Ephesus when Epaphras hears him, and Epaphras goes back, and he, and he shares the same things Paul says in Ephesus, and he shares those things with the church in Colossae, and the letters are, are very similar to each other. Similar in structure and similar in content. But these are so important because they clearly express the nature of Christ and the church's relationship to Christ and the beauty and magnificence of who Jesus is. And if you love Jesus, if you care about Jesus, if it means anything to you, when you read this letter, it ought to just bring joy to your heart and satisfaction to your soul and a desire to live a life that makes him happy and will ultimately make you happy, that brings him glory and satisfies your soul in him. I love the way Paul paints the picture of Jesus in this book. And if you love Jesus, then this book should be amazing to you because Jesus is, should be amazing to you. You should love, he should be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your mind. I know you haven't seen him physically. I haven't either. Be careful if people tell you they have. They haven't. But he is so complex, but yet so simple. He's transcendent beyond, he's transcendent beyond what you could even imagine. And yet he's so present. He is as present with you today as he was when he stood next to Peter and talked to him. He's with you in your sin. He's with you in your weakness. He sympathizes and has compassion with you. He also leads you and guides you. He speaks to your heart. His spirit sends word. His spirit sends his word to your mind and to your heart to tell you how to live. Jesus is the most beautiful thing that's ever existed. And it wasn't created. He wasn't created. He is God. And he is man. And that is the essential nature that Paul is trying to get to, to the Colossians. The most prevalent heresy in the history of the world is the attack on the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. The nature of Jesus as both fully God and fully human is the most essential truth to the church. Without that reality, there is no reality. If Jesus is not fully God then he cannot be the Christ or the Messiah. And if Jesus is not fully man, then he is not sufficient as a sacrificial, perfect lamb for our sins. 
So Satan, uh, his army, and thousands of heretics over the last 2,000 years have made the nature of Jesus their central point of attack. And the church has the responsibility and joy of not defending, but proclaiming the fullness of the deity and the humanity and the full nature of who Jesus Christ is. Just as Paul does in a couple chapters, we'll see in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says, For in him, that's Jesus, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is nothing in the human body of Jesus the man. The man who was born as a baby. Who, had, who, who was completely dependent on his mother to eat. Who had to learn and grow. Who probably fell down, stubbed a toe, cried. We know he cried. Had your emotions, he was sad, he was happy, he'd be angry, righteous anger. He, he experienced the full range of emotions, he experienced the full range of humanity. There is nothing, nothing, not an ounce, not a molecule in your human existence that he has not experienced. Look at Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who is able to sympathize with us because he has been tested with every temptation, yet he is without sin. He is the perfect expression of what we are supposed to be like. And in his body, in this human man, fully human. I mean, I, I think maybe we look at Jesus and we think, yeah, he's fully man, but he's also fully God. So he's kind of like this weird expression of a human. No, he's just like you. I mean, he's just a dude. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. If he was standing here, you could touch his arms and his flesh, and he has hairy arms and, you know, like probably freckles. And, you know, like if you look at Isaiah 53, it says that he wasn't much to look at. I mean, I'm not saying Jesus was ugly. I would never say that, Lord. But, <laughs> I mean, they did say, you know, Isaiah said, he's not, I mean, he's probably just an average-looking guy. Fully human, just like you, yet without sin. And in that human body, with that human mind, human thoughts, and human emotions, dwells inside of it, and in it, and out of it, and on it, and around it, and everything. The fullness of that flesh is the fullness. Not just the fullness, but Paul says, the whole fullness. Those are two words that don't need to be next to each other. When I wrote this, on my computer, my Word document highlighted whole fullness and suggested that I get rid of the word whole because it was redundant. And I said, oh, Microsoft Word, you idiot. And I said, ignore! Because the Bible says whole fullness. There is nothing in Jesus Christ that lacks the fullness of God. He is the total deity. And that is the central truth about the nature of Jesus. And without it, we have a false gospel. We have Gnosticism. And the most false gospels twist this truth about Jesus' fullness of both divine and human nature. Now, 
Practically speaking, you might kind of think, that well, the, the nature of Jesus really isn't under attack in my life. I don't see it in my culture. It's not really a big deal to me. I don't really see this on the ground that much. Most people I know, especially in small towns like Osceola or, you know, the, in the Midwest, you got small towns, a lot of people raised on church. They believe in God and they believe Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus. They don't have faith in him. So you might kind of think, like, ah, most people I know believe in God. So does this really matter? I would probably say, I think, if, if you think that there are people who don't believe in the full of humanity, in the full deity of Christ, you probably don't spend enough time around a lot of believers, or, or, I'm sorry, you don't spend enough time around a lot of unbelievers, but you should spend time around lots of unbelievers. Be, and, and if you are spending time with lots of unbelievers, you don't think they they don't believe this about the nature of Christ, then you probably haven't had deep discussions with them about who Jesus is. Because if you ask most non-believers about the nature of Christ, and you say to them, do you believe that Jesus really was a human who actually lived in real history? Yes. Do you believe he was physically 100% a man? Yes. Do you believe that he is actually 100%, not only 100% a man, but also 100% God? How they answer that next question is vital. Because if they say yes, then my response is, then how could you disobey him and not believe his gospel? If he's God, and you just admitted he's God, obey him. Which means they'd either say he's God, but not believe it, or say he's God and believe it, but still reject it because they don't want to be saved. Or they don't believe he's God, even if they say. So this is important, because without this truth buried deep into our hearts, we are prone, easily prone to not believe in the full nature of Christ. And without the exploration of Jesus' hypostatic union, okay, I'm going to explain that word for you for a second, if you don't already know what it is. I've said it before, but for those of you who didn't hear it, I'll say it again. Hypostatic union is a theological term that we use that, is, that expresses this idea of Jesus being 100% God, 100% divine and 100% man. He is the son of God and the son of man. And, and, and hypostatic union is this idea of the convergence, the reality that Jesus himself exists as 100% God and 100% man in one person, which makes no sense, mathematically speaking. If I had a glass right here and a glass right here and they were both filled to the brim with water, they would be 100% full. And if I took one of those glasses and poured it into the other glass, what would happen? It would overflow. Can that one glass contain 100% of this glass and 100% of this glass? It cannot. So I think we think, of, we think mathematically in those terms. And that's just an, like a, an analogy, an expression to help you see or understand that our human minds, we look at Jesus and we go 100% plus 100% not possible. So what do we resort to? Oh, he's 50% God and 50% man. He's like half God, half man. No, that's Greek mythology. He is 100% God and 100% man. And so if we take water and pour it in the glass and it overflows, you've got, you know, like 100% of water in the glass and 100% of water on the table. So how do you get all that water into the glass? You have to be the Messiah. You have to be God. You have to be Jesus, and there's only one, and there only will ever be one. 
And he is who he is and he always will be. And it is the most important reality in your entire life to not only believe who he is and what he's like, but to proclaim who he is and what he's like and to maintain and preserve the reality of who he is and what he's like so that our gospel would, 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 our gospel would be preserved and we could carry that gospel into a world that doesn't know him so that they would be saved. And if they don't want to get saved, fine. But we will not stop doing what we're called to do. Which is proclaim the truth of who he is. So without the full exploration of Jesus' hypostatic union, the blending of his reality, we lose our Jesus. We lose his emotions, which are expressed anywhere in between his depth of compassion for sinners, all the way over to his, the, the, his perfect wrath and anger towards evil and sin and everywhere in between. We lose the humanity of Jesus and we lose the fullness of his nature. We lose his pity and we lose his joy. We lose his singing over us and we lose his nearness to us and we lose his sufficiency as our savior, as our only savior and as our sacrifice for our sins. We lose the fullness of the humanity. When we lose the fullness of the humanity of Jesus, we lose. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If this isn't true, we should be pitied more than anybody because we are doomed. And when we lose the fullness of the deity of Jesus, we, we lose his sovereignty and his supremacy. We lose his transcendent nature that elevates him above all other beings. We lose our creator and we lose our sustainer who sovereignly ordains all molecules in existence to operate according to his will so to secure for himself the complete fullness of his glory that he not only deserves but has earned in his humanity. When we lose his deity, listen to this, when we lose his deity, we lose our existence. I'm going to get philosophical with you here. Reality, as it is, and I think we would all agree on what reality is because it's tangible. We'd all agree that this pulpit's here, the chair you're sitting on is real, it's material, it's made of cloth and metal, that your body's made of atoms and flesh and blood and bones. We believe these things. It's real, it's tangible, touchable, and we can understand it. And most of us, I mean, I think probably everyone in this room, but most people in the world also believe in some non-physical reality too, like a spiritual world. So our understanding of reality, reality as we see it, as we know it today, is only what it is because Jesus determines it to be that way. Reality as we know it is not even the most realistic reality. I'm going to say that again. Reality as we know it is not even the most realistic reality. What we call reality today, this room, you, me, the stuff in it, the air we breathe, this reality, the fact that you have a brain, thoughts, ideas, emotions, that reality is only a faint image of the truest reality. This isn't even my real body. How cool is that? And don't you agree? You agree with me, don't you? This isn't my real body. I can't wait to get my new body. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to have a six-pack finally. I'm so jacked for that. You should be too. Like, we're finally going to have 
perfection. So I would think we would all agree that we're going to get resurrection bodies and it's not going to be this body. I get a new one. So this isn't even me. This is a shell that houses a mind, a soul, a spirit that was given to me by God that has emotions and feels and believes and talks and teaches and listens and interacts and relates and loves and cries and hurts and joys. That is, this is just, this is just bones. Inside is something much more. That's reality, and that reality carries on. But everything else outside, the Gnostics were on to something a little bit. They're way off, but they kind of had a, a hint of, of the concept that this is not it. This reality is not the real reality. The most realistic reality will be our eternal experience on Jesus' new earth with a new body. That's my real body. You're getting a real body. The brokenness of this world due to sin taints our reality. Like miracles and healing by Jesus aren't to count, they don't counter our reality. It's actually a restoration of brokenness back to reality. Jesus' deity assures us that our faltering experience as humans in a sinful world with sinful natures is just a faded image of what true life and true reality are and the true reality of existence will be best experienced in the presence of God in Christ during our eternal state where Psalm 1611 says there is pleasure forevermore and joy that goes on eternally. If Jesus is not human, we lose our salvation. If Jesus is not God, we lose reality. So as Paul does in Colossians, so we will do as faithful saints at Grace Church, as believers, as Christians, we will proclaim the true nature of Christ. We will preserve the gospel as scripture declares it, and we will trust in the fullness of the nature of Jesus to secure not only our salvation, but our existence and our reality. And if you're asking the question, who really cares? Why does it matter? I already know it. I believe it. What do, I, what do you want me to do? There's no hairs. There's no Gnostics standing outside our door waiting to convert people to Gnosticism. What's the big deal? What matters is that Paul is getting us to the point is that Jesus is who Jesus is, regardless of the heresy, regardless of the false teaching, regardless if there is no heresy and no false teaching. As far as I know at this moment... And I hope I'm right. There is no heresy or false teaching being spread throughout our church. There's, I've heard hints and little pieces of it in our community. As far as that Hebrew roots movement. A little bit of that here. And that's kind of all over the nation. Uh, but other than that, I don't see any heresy. So why talk about this? Let me just put, I'll just put it to you this way. I love Jesus. He's so cool. He's like, he's so real. I've never seen his face. I've never touched his body. And I feel like I know him so well. And then I look at my life and I think, maybe I don't know him as well as I want to because my sin keeps trying to like pull me back from Jesus. And I'm just like, I want to just know you better, Jesus. And I love him so much. 
I want to like talk to him and say, Lord, just come now. Now I understand why Paul's like, come on, come back. I want to see you. If you feel that way about him, any of you ought to if you're a believer, if you feel that way about Jesus, about Christ, then you're going to love Colossians. You're not just going to love Colossians, you're going to love the whole Bible because he's, he's the main character, he's the whole point. And my, what I'm telling you is, if there's no heresy or false teaching going on in our church, why talk about what's the heresy in Colossae? Because Paul's just going to talk about Jesus. That's enough for me. And it ought to be enough for you. That should be all that matters. Fine, I don't care what the heresy is. I don't care what's going on in the world. I don't care if our government is toppling or if COVID comes back or whatever else is going on in the world or if, if my children are suffering or if my wife is suffering or if I'm losing my job or if my world is upside down. I still have Jesus. And I want to go to church and I want to hear about Jesus and I want to hear about the Christ, the Messiah, my God, my human, my best friend who loves me and died for me and intercedes for me and advocates for me and gets angry for me and has compassion for me and loves me and is with me and for me forever. And in him alone, I am victorious eternally. That is my Jesus. And you ought to want to know him and love him and hear from him. This, this book is just this beautiful expression of the full nature of Christ. And as you read it, guys, I really just believe that as a church, as a church together, united as one, we will all grow individually into a greater appreciation, love, and passion for Jesus, your best friend and Savior, the lover of your soul, the man who loves you more than any person on this earth could ever love you. And together, we're all going to individually grow to be more like Christ and grow in Christ and to know him better and love him better. And as we individually all grow, we are unitedly growing together so that we would be a body together that expresses the nature of Christ to an entire community that doesn't know him. If we lose this Jesus, we lose. But brothers and sisters, in Christ, we win. No, in Christ, we won. Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That is our battle cry. That is our victory. I watch, I'm going to watch the Packers today. Amen. I'm going to watch the Packers today. And I guarantee when we score all 13 touchdowns today, <laughs> and we dominate, I don't even know who we're playing, but we're going to dominate. You better believe I'm going to be celebrating celebrating when we win. And if we lose, I might not be celebrating, but I assume we're going to win. We'll see if I eat my words this week. But the point is that if I can sit on my couch and celebrate a football game, a football game that is three and a half hours long. By the way, did you know, in that three and a half hour broadcast of a football game, of an NFL game, do you know how many... How much time is actually played during a snap? When the ball's snapped and the guys are actually running and moving around on the field, do you know how much time is actually spent playing the game of football? Three seconds. Oh, three seconds. <laughs> You're so close. 11 minutes. 
Not even joking. 11 minutes. I sit there for three and a half hours to watch 11 minutes of content. I, don't, I can't do the math that fast. What's the percentage there? I don't know. Minuscule. 1% of my time watching a football game is actually watching a football game. That's a terrible percentage. But when I spend time with Jesus, that's 100%. I get all of him. The fullness of him. He's like, here, Mark, you get everything. All of me. The totality of me. And, and if I can celebrate 11 minutes, even though I'm watching it for three and a half hours, you better believe we ought to be willing to celebrate when we get 100% of Jesus. And I mean celebrate. When I watched Aaron Rodgers throw a pass on the sideline against the Dallas Cowboys a few years ago to secure for us the NFC championship, I jumped out of my chair. It's on video, so you can ask my wife for it because she was recording it. I didn't know. I jumped out of my chair, screamed at the top of my lungs, ripped my shirt off, and ran through the house with no shirt on, screaming and celebrating. Yeah. That, just being honest with you. That is how I feel about the Packers. How ought I feel about my Jesus? We don't fight for victory in Jesus. Listen, we fight from the victory in Jesus, which means we fight for a perspective of who Jesus is that comes from the truth of who Jesus is, which we'll get in Colossians, so that we would not only believe the truth, but that because our perspective on who he is is right, we would live and be like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you, we love you, we thank you. Jesus, be real to us today. We pray this in your holy, precious, awesome name, the only name that saves Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. amen.